From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. We're coming to you live from the Birmingham Jefferson Conference Center in beautiful downtown Birmingham, Alabama, the site of tomorrow's EWTN family celebration. Colin Donovan, our Vice President of Theology, is in the house ready to take your phone calls. So pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall back at the studio spinning the dials, producing the program. Your call screener is Ace McKay and Jeff Burson, magnificent person handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube today, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology for EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you? Well, like most of our employees running around getting the family celebration set up and looking forward to tomorrow's excitement. And you are uh, responsible primarily for the liturgical uh, do's and don'ts of the uh, celebration tomorrow? Well, we leave the do's and don'ts to the clergy, but we get all of the things there they do and don't do it with. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, there's, there's, you know, the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist. Yes, you can negotiate with a terrorist. That's right. <laughs> I don't think we're in the terrorist category, but uh, we make sure they have what they need where they need it. For cozy right up there to that microphone. Okay, we're not in the con- I, I we're not in the friendly microphone. we're not in the friendly confines of the studio today. Unfortunately, makes you so. appreciate our studio. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Got an email here from Gerard in Ireland. He says, uh, "Is watching mass on EWTN equal to going to mass at a church?" Well, it's not participating in the sacrament. Sacramental participation is when you are actually there, you're at the sacrifice of the Mass, you receive Holy Communion. That doesn't mean it's without benefit. Uh, certainly during COVID, we all had the situation where you couldn't get into get to Mass on a Sunday. Uh, you didn't fulfill your obligation, but you were excused from your obligation by the physical and legal obstacles of, of going to Mass and participating in the Mass. So it's, it's not equivalent, but I... Th- I think it's to be sure that a devout participation in a televised celebration of the Mass or uh, any other uh, liturgical event that's on television is before God, is something to uh, be rewarded and graced. And so I don't think you will lose out other than in the fact that you're not sacramentally participating. So we must be there to uh, attend a Mass, to receive Holy Communion. But we can spiritually attend and we can receive a spiritual communion uh, virtually through uh, internet, radio, television, 
and other electronic means. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call here on Open Line Friday. Tim in Austin, Texas says, Why in some Catholic theology, well, we just read that on the last program. We're sharing emails now between shows. Um, Many in Calmet, Louisiana, who moved the Lord's Day from Saturday to Sunday and why? Are you responsible for that, Colin? No, I, I didn't do that. Um, I would have done it, however, if given the opportunity, <laughs> but the apostles beat me to it. We already see that there was an effort in going to Israel to, uh, to appreciate and, and, and to bring the truth of the gospel to the Israelites. We see St. Paul would go into the synagogues on Saturday, and he would break bread with the brethren, the Christian brethren, on, on the day after, on the eighth day. the the Sunday. And so that day became the day in which the church celebrated its Sabbath. There are all kinds of reasons in retrospect we can see why that was done. Uh, Certainly the fact that the Jewish people celebrated Saturday as the day in which the creative work of God was done. Christians celebrate Sunday because this is the day on which the redemptive work of God was done by through Christ's passion, death, and resurrection completed then on Easter Sunday. It's the Sunday in which the the Lord appeared to the uh, disciples on the way to Emmaus, uh, in which it seems as if in some sense, some quasi-sense at least, if not in reality, there was a liturgy of the Word and a liturgy of the Eucharist during which they they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And that expression, the breaking of the bread in the early church, became uh, an expression that meant the Eucharist, the Mass. And so the the liturgy of the Word that takes place is somewhat similar historically and uh, analogically to what was done in the temple, where the priest did the sacrifice inside the, the Holy, and the Holy of Holies, certainly on Yom Kippur, but outside, there was a liturgy of the word taking place at the morning and evening sacrifice. And when they didn't have the temple, they had the liturgy of the word in the synagogue as they continued to do today. There's no sacrificial element. In Christianity, we have both. Because that we have that liturgy of the word, that tradition of using reading and appreciating the scriptures, which the Jewish people had. And to that, we have the sacrifice of Christ on the cross being represented in the Mass. So those two elements are joined together. And the church, realizing that, it understood that a new creation had been made. The old Adam, the old Eve, had been replaced by the new Adam and the new Eve. The old sacrifices of blood, of uh, bulls and, and goats and sheep and so on, been replaced by the one sacrifice of Christ, which now we celebrate in memorial every Sunday because that's the day on which that Paschal mystery of his passion, death, and resurrection was completed. So the church started celebrating it and it simply continued on going for centuries. Uh, In fact, it's only within the last 150 to 200 years that new groups have arisen who suddenly say, oh no, we should be celebrating the Sabbath and that's Saturday. Uh, That is a historical you know, ignoring the reality of what Christ accomplished in a new creation in himself. 
and which we celebrate when we come together on the Christian Sabbath Sunday. Uh, Rita writes in, My 96-year-old mother noticed that we say maker instead of creator in the creed. This concerns her, and she would like she would like to know when and why this was changed. Apparently everybody thinks you have a lot of authority today, Colin. Yeah, no, I didn't change that one either. <laughs> <laughs> what we, you know, different words have different uh, meanings and implications in different languages. So obviously the word creator, the creator is what God is, is he who creates. An analogous word in English would be uh, a maker. Uh, we normally say, for instance, you could say, oh, he, you know, he created that great work of art. Or he made that great work of art. These are e equal ways of saying it. So these kinds of translation decisions are made in translating what was uh, originally the Latin version of the Creed, which actually uh, originally was the Greek version of the Creed. <laughs> so two, two translations ago. Uh, but it all has the same meaning, and the church certainly has that intention. We're talking about the Eternal Father uh, and God as a whole, because creation is an act of all three divine persons in different ways because of the, uh, the relationship among them. Uh, but that God created and made everything, and that's the singular claim that is being made in that text in, in, in the Creed is that God created everything that exists and in the Fourth Lateran Council they, they spelled it out by saying everything both spiritual and material in other words the angels all the angels and all of material creation now, there are no more angels since that day, but there are certainly changes of the material creation of which in each of our cases, there is the magnificent change that into the matter contributed by our parents, God infused a soul, an immortal soul. So that's the only creation that goes on since that day in which everything spiritual and material was created is the infusion of the soul in a new human being at the moment of the conception when their matter of their parents come together and God gives them a soul. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Coming to you live from the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Center in downtown Birmingham, the site of tomorrow's EWTN family celebration. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Do you feel like God is calling you to something, but you don't know what? Well, happily, now there's a book to help you cut through the clutter so that you can prayerfully discern God's will for your life, that life to which he calls you, 
and for which he created you. Discernment, Do's and Don'ts, a practical guide to vocational discernment is great for Catholic teens and young adults. It combines the teachings of the scriptures, church documents and church fathers and the saints and a healthy dose of good old common sense into one handy how-to guide on finding God's will for you. College chaplain, tech apostle, and parish priest, Father George Elliott, shows young people how to navigate seven different stages of the discernment process and provides one best practice, the do's, and employ, uh, to employ, rather, and one pitfall to avoid the don'ts at each stage. Uh, simply, it's available now at EWTNRC.com, EWTN's religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. There's free standard shipping right now and online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use code FREE at checkout. And if you come to the family celebration tomorrow here in Birmingham, we have a full religious catalog set up, and you can take it with you and pay nothing for shipping regardless of the amount that you spend. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've got wide open phone lines for you on this Friday. 833-288-3986. Patricia writes in, I hope you can help me. I'm wondering what the Catholic Church teaches on organ donation. When I was younger, we learned that it was against our religion. Is that still the case? Well, if our religion means the Catholic religion, there was never a a blanket... um, difficulty with organization. Remember, it's only something that's been scientifically possible within the last uh, 50 years. Uh, the fir- there were kidney transplants and, and other things, but the, the, the moral issues come about largely because of things like heart uh, transplantation, which uh, you know began, I think, uh, when I was a, a young person long, long ago. You had the, the various cases where a heart transplant was done for the first first time on different continent, different countries. And so this raised the question is, you have to determine whether the person is dead before you can take it. So that has created moral standards as for how to do that. And the church has it. Sometimes we think, wonder whether medicine has exactly the same standards or not. With other organs, there are obviously some organs that you you can't transplant. Uh, well, and we and before you go to that on mm-hmm. the same line, there's also this whole notion of hastening death. Well, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. That if you if you hasten death in order to take an organ, then you killed the person. Uh, you a person has to be dead and not by any human hand. The disease can kill them, and then an organ that's not affected by the disease could be taken. But you that's the trouble where, where the heart transplants become more difficult. We have a number of bilateral organs, meaning we have two kidneys, we have two lungs. Uh, so it's not unheard of that people actually transplant those, especially kidneys between si- uh, siblings would be common because of the close match, but other relatives as well, and they do matching of all of that. So all of that is accepted by the church. Uh, it has to be done morally. Uh, it has to be done freely. Uh, we hear of illegal transplantation, transplantation from prisoners without their consent in some countries in the world, Transplantate, uh, transplantations from uh, religious and other minorities in some countries in the world. Uh, all of that would be gravely immoral to do that kind of thing. Uh, so it depends on what organ it is. There are some organs that are used to, that we are unique to us. So, for instance, the sexual organs of male and female contain our own 
uh, genetic patrimony, if you will. Those can't be transplanted. Uh, but other organs which are not, life is not completely dependent upon, by which a person can survive that transplantation, uh, generally you can transplant those if the science is there the safe, and it's safe to do, safe to do so. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I'm giving you unfettered access to a real-life theologian today. Colin Donovan is in the house, our very own Vice President of Theology. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Nicole wants to know, why does the Catholic Church accept NFP to prevent pregnancy if you are supposed to be open to life? Well, natural family planning... uh, first of all, is an alternative to artificial uh, family planning by means of contraceptives of different kinds. And that word tells us what is attacked. Conception itself is attacked and prevented by interfering with the processes of human life, reproduction and life uh, production. And so that's why the church is opposed to that. In Humanae Vitae, the encyclical in 1968, which Paul VI uh, published after uh, had been studied, and frankly, the, the views of theologians and others were pro and con on whether something like the pill could be, uh, could be uh, entertained as moral in some circumstances. He concluded, no, that the church's uh, age-old wisdom, that the elements of, of, of marriage that it's unitive and procreative had to be sustained in any in any act that doesn't mean one has to seek to be become pregnant or have life in every act so what natural family planning does is take advantage of the natural processes which god has built into the woman's nature in order to observe in the fertile times, abstinence, and in the non-fertile times, uh, obviously, conjugal relations. So that's the principle by which natural family planning is moral. The other element of that is, is because this is a serious matter, the Pope said you needed a just reason, which translates to a serious reason when, when, uh, when considering what would rise to the level of just. So a serious reason would be the health of the woman, uh, the inability of the family at a particular time economically and otherwise to sustain uh, a new life at this time. And then that can be justified. And so that would be, that would be allowed the, the question, uh, would raise the question, what is the intention of the couple? If their intentions is contraceptive, in other words, at all costs, regardless of, of when and for regardless of the reason, we don't want to have children now, that would be a contraceptive mo- motivation. But if a serious reason is used to space children or to avoid the fertile times become because, say, of a medical consideration or, or, or even a, a family situation, um, you can imagine flight during war, hard economic times, uh, the depression, uh, the many people who fled various countries in, in, uh, during World War II, 
that these would be serious reasons not to have a child as you're fleeing from you know the enemies of your people so that's the kind of serious reason that is needed it cannot be a reason against life but a reason that this is not the opportune time and we use the method that God has built into life itself the fact that there are already infertile periods that we may take advantage of. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Mina wants to know, what is the Catholic view on cremation, specifically when bodies are supposed to be resurrected? The Church allows cremation, but then the created remains, or cremains as, as they've been called, must be uh, kept in a sacred place, which means in a columbarium. Uh, it means can be in the ground. And it generally means that this is done with the help of a priest so that the place of placement is, is blessed. So in that respect, it's no different than the, the body itself. The church's belief in the resurrection doesn't demand that God have all of those. You need only open up an old grave to know that those particular molecules are part of all kinds of other critters now Mm -hmm. and they are no longer in one place god will will solve those kinds of problems so it's the respect that is owed to the body of a person who participated in the sacraments during life especially baptism in the eucharist and who themselves is destined for eternal life that those are treated respectfully by the heirs by the the family members and not used in some, you know, uh, silly purpose of scattering them all over the ocean or in the hills or, or on them keeping them on the mantle or something like this. Like you might your 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 puppy dog after it died, you might keep the dog's remains around. Um, so you can't do you can't do that kind of thing. That's disrespectful of a body destined for eternal life. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. We go now to John in Middlebrook, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Gentlemen, good afternoon to both of you. Hello there. Keep your head down with all the traffic going on, all the noise in the background. A question for you, Colin, regarding the possible laitization of a priest. Uh, You're fading in and out. Yeah, we're kind of we're kind of fading in and out. Can you try that one more time, John? Yeah. We we heard that part. We didn't hear what followed. Yeah. Well, the purpose is going to have to be. You have to turn it Yeah, unfortunately, John, we're we're having a hard time uh, hearing you uh, on the phone. Um, we will give you a try back in just a few moments. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Ryan wants to know, when did the doctrine of transubstantiation uh, begin in the Catholic Church? Well, the doctrine of transubstantiation is a formalization of the means of what happens in the case of 
the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. That the church has always believed. But my, like most things that are we contemporaneously know or can look up in a theology textbook or find in a church father or uh, in a medieval theologian like uh, Albert the Great or Thomas Aquinas or any others, everything which the church believed in a rather simple way has been developed in a more complex way to arrive at a an explanation of the re- religious truth, the truth of faith which we hold by faith, in a way that shows that although reason cannot penetrate to the depths of a, a revealed truth. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Let's go to John again in Middlebrook, Virginia. John, let us see if we have our technological act together here. Yeah, let's see, gentlemen. I know it's a carnival son of a caller had my radio on, too, so I'm going to shoulder some of the blame on that, so I'll, I'll pony up. Uh, regarding the laitization of a priest, uh, there's a, a very small parish in North Carolina that a priest is threatened with laitization, mostly because allocation of funds that come into the parish. It was felt by a member of, of the parish that they did not want anything going to cha- uh, Catholic charities. And the priest is going to acknowledge that and obey by that. He's under threat. For doing that, is that a cause for laitization? Well, the, the cause of of any such case, regardless is that particular one or, or many others, is usually it's either a moral delect on the part of the individual, or it's a question of the obedience obliged to one's bishop. So there's a promise of obedience, uh, essentially a vow that is made at the time of ordination. Uh, so that may be uh, at play here. Uh, that is, there are many, many things, obviously, which could fall under that. And church law doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, have a complete iteration of everything for which you can be th- threatened and even punished for. Uh, many things in terms of the obedience to the bishop, uh, obviously, that you would think that laicization would be a last course. There is a history in the United States, however, of parishes, as has happened uh, around the turn of the 20th century, in other words, a hundred and some years ago, uh, in Pennsylvania, and then in more recent decades in St. Louis, there is a case where a parish wanted to be essentially autonomous and do its own, run its own show, and the bishops warned them, and finally a schism occurred, and punishment, of course, followed for those whose, you know, uh, whose power the church reaches. And that means any priests or deacons that were involved, and of course any laity will go along with that schismatic activity. So I don't know where this will lead. I don't even know the history of it, but I just know that historically these kinds of things come about, and that regardless of that nothing is ever autonomously decided by a bishop even that if 
somebody th- feels they're being uh, treated unjustly by their bishop, whether a lay person for that matter or a, a member of the priesthood or religious life, they have the possibility of appealing to Rome uh, to determine. I think it's when the rubber hits the road and you decide, are you going to obey your own will or are you going to obey the church, that you start looking at penalties. That may be the case here, but I don't know any facts to support an opinion one way or the other. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Just in case there was any doubt as to the fact that we are live. Uh, we, uh, we're competing with a forklift now, so we're doing okay, though, as these uh, good folks here at the BJCC worked uh, hard to get us all set up uh, here that's for tomorrow's right. family celebration. So we can ne- hardly complain. That's right. Next up is Robert. He is deployed. Thanks for your service, Robert. You are on with Colin Donovan. I, I just appreciate that WETN, the shortwave stations, are, are there because pretty much wherever I am in the world, I can, I can still catch EWTN. So, quick question for you all. So, shout out to the shortwave engineers. Um, sometimes I can't make it to Mass. I do everything I can to make it to Mass, but sometimes I listen to Mass on EWTN, uh, you know, because you guys do it every morning at like 0700 Central Time. Does that count? I mean, if, if you have a true heart and you truly want to make it to Mass, it's not like you're sleeping in or, or you're knocking off or doing anything crazy like that. Is it it, it may not be as efficacious, or maybe it is, but what, what is the ramifications on, on that, if you don't mind? Uh, a little bit of detail. Are you, uh, is, are you in a ship at sea? Uh, I, I can't tell you guys. I'm sorry. Then don't tell me, please. Uh, I had a clearance at 1.2, yeah. and so I know the obligations of that. No, I would certainly think that deployment in and of itself would come with some considerations. Well, I can tell you, I can count on one hand the number of times in four years at sea that we had mass on board the ship, and the number is one. Simply because smaller ships, uh, you don't have a chaplain on board. And the one time we were taking part in an exercise in the Western Pacific uh, in a carrier group, and uh, the chaplain was flying around, and the poor guy was lowered to our hangar deck and came in, celebrated mass, heard some confessions, and then was hauled off to some other little ship. Uh, there is a general rule here, and it's called the, the law of necessity. It's why we don't have to go to mass when, you know, you're up to your belt in snow and the weather is horrible, or you're sick, or you have to care for your sick children. This is an, these are excuses for a, the obligation to do it. There's a principle in moral theology, which also then applies in, in canon law and in many other areas, and that is that God does not demand the impossible. So positive human law and even positive divine law can lapse when what is before you is a, a, a task beyond your reach, beyond your ability to do it. And so getting to Mass on a Sunday for weather or physical impossibility or moral impossibility either. You know, maybe, and I know in the bad old days of liturgy, a lot of people just, you know, they had one church to go to. They couldn't church shop. And the liturgy was abysmal and full of abuses, and they couldn't bring themselves to go. That would be called moral impossibility. So whatever your exact situation is, I am... I'm pretty certain that you have a physical impossibility or other kind of impossibility uh, due to distance, due to other circumstances, 
preventing you, and that is a sufficient reason. The fact that you're listening, whether it's by WEWN or uh, or online through the internet, uh, this is to your, uh, I think, to your credit. And so, as I was telling a caller at the top of the show, uh, or an email, I think it might have been, that you do that and God will have grace for you. Uh, but it is not sacramental participation in the Mass, and you can do a spiritual communion, but that's not sacramental communion. The sacraments have effects which Christ, by His authority, gave them, and when they are done properly and we are receiving it, we benefit from those effects. In the case of uh, participation through radio and TV, internet, or however it's done, uh, obviously you are completely throwing yourself on God. But in some ways, the very fact that you go to the trouble makes you especially docile to whatever graces that uh, he wishes to offer you. So you need not fret about that in the least. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Catherine in Cleveland, Ohio, listening to EWTN on The Rock. Catherine, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, I, I'd just like to talk about um, the consecration. Hello. Uh, All right, go right uh, ahead. It, it's, well, I have to say, Our Lady promised all the wars in the world will cease and we'll have an era of peace 1,000 years when it gets done correctly. And it's never, never been done right. That is the promise. And if you're willing to do investigation on it, you'll find that it has been the promise. There will be more spiritual people rising in the future, too. But the promise is world peace and a thousand years of peace and all wars will will cease. Well, thank thank you for your thought on that. But there's nowhere in any of the authenticated messages of Our Lady does she promise that. She said Russia will be converted and an era of peace will be given to the world. The church has long ago, uh, has long ago rejected the idea of, of a millennium, a, a thousand years, but rather that that is in the understanding of the church, the time between the first and the second coming, the time in which the church is operative. Uh, the era of peace promised from Our Lady certainly implies a freedom from the kinds of turmoil right. that war brings in terms of famine and, and and anguish and, and all of that. And so we we still have that, I think, uh, to look forward to. Uh, but the point is that that's not the way the promise was described either in uh, 1917 uh, on the July apparition or in 1929 when she came to make the specific request or through uh, revelation she made to Sister Lucia as a as a nun uh, during the 30s and 40s and 50s and later or to uh, blessed alexandrina de costa who also was asked for a consecration but of the whole world of the immaculate heart which pius XII did and multiple popes since so i think you have to get the whole facts and the history of it to understand what exactly our lady was asking for and when you get into that, you find both in the writings of Sister Lucia trying to explain it and also in the, in the words of the apparitions themselves, was that Our Lady came not of her own accord, but as was explained to Sister Lucia afterwards, 
in order to establish in the world devotion to the Immaculate Heart. And many have said that the use of consecrations, which began in the 1940s with Pius XII in response to Blessing Alexandrina and also uh, Our Lady of Fatima, that has continued down to our day, has been described as a new era in Marian devotion because it brings our understanding of Mary's role in the redemptive history and salvation in, in conjunction with her son in a way that we never fully appreciated. We had the hints and so on and the things theologians have written over the years and ex speaking of this, Louis de Montfort certainly pressed push the idea of personal consecration. Now we have the many kinds of corporate consecrations that have uh, come about as a result of Fatima. And then too, I think we have to remember what was, uh, what was said. We have an era of peace, why? And we get that information from St. Faustina, to whom the Lord told that if they will not pass through my mercy, they must pass through my judgment. Our Lady is the mercy of the Lord. Her appeals to us, her calls to us, her calls for us to use consecration, to use the five first Saturdays, to pray the rosary for peace, to do reparation for the sins of others. All of these things are calls to the world as Sister Lucia described in her wonderful book regarding the calls from the message of Fatima. All of these things are appeals to us because they're appeals to the divine mercy because we can see in the wars of our present day even what will happen if people don't go to the divine mercy. Judgment will fall and that's why she came to forestall that. And we're frankly not doing a very good job of forestalling it but we have to keep trying and those of us who are understand and trust uh, she's entrusted the message to must try to live it ever more perfectly in order to accomplish the goals that she established at Fatima and the goal also which St. Uh, Faustina mentioned uh, was the goal of our Lord to send this appeal of mercy to, to the whole world uh, in order to avert uh, the justice and the wrath of God. You know, we've been talking about the family celebration tomorrow here at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, not only are we going to have the beautiful Eucharistic procession to conclude uh, the final thing, but it's really a celebration of, uh, during this centenary year of Mother Angelica's birth, it's a celebration of her love for the Eucharist, and it's reflected in the speakers that we have. We have Father Wade Menezes. You can hear from the perspective of a priest, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. You can hear from the perspective of a deacon, Jim and Joy Pinto. You can hear from the perspective of a married couple and much, much more, Michael Warsaw, Doug Keck. Uh, all of the um, friars from the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word, and much, much more. Go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration for all the details. It's not too late. You, you won't miss it until 6 p.m. tomorrow, so make it a point to get here if you can. Next and up it's going to replay the following weekend, too, so we'll that's, that's, yeah, look don't, for that. That's, for it, that it's not going, that's not the case, so we'll, oh, okay. uh, we'll bring uh, that, that kind of uh, information to you uh, down the road. Um, Anyway, next up is Joseph in Philadelphia listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joseph, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, good afternoon. Um, <clears throat> my, my question is surrounding uh, my daughter um, constantly quotes this person who 
is called a SEER, S-E-E-R, um, out of, I believe, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I think last name is Sweeney. Um, and it, it, a lot of, apparently she gets revelations from, you know, Christ and the Blessed Mother. Um, and some of the stuff that she appears to be saying uh, appears rather dubious. And I looked into it a little bit more, and apparently the bishop, who is out of Cleveland, um, has distanced the church from, from this person. But a couple of people that I know that sort of, like, follow this person uh, call the bishop disordered. So are, are you familiar with any of this? I, I don't really know what is going on here, but uh, some of the pronouncements, particularly, you know, around uh, COVID, and the COVID vaccine, and how it was, you know, just, it was a little crazy. But uh, are you familiar with this? Yes, and uh, Maureen Sweeney is a long-time uh, problem uh, for the church. There is no basis, none, zero basis for believing her alleged revelations are anything more than from her own spirit or other spirit. Uh, they are not from God. The church has said so. A person who would disobey their bishop is inclined to follow their own opinion on things, obviously. So, therefore, you know, that's already the starting uh, down a bad path. Uh, you can completely and safely, without concern for God's judgment on your head, ignore those revelations. There is no basis for them, no basis for accepting them. Uh, yeah, I think you have already seen, humanly speaking, um, that there are disorders in, in, in them. Uh, so now the trouble will be to convince, I think you said it was your mother is interested in this. But here, here's what the church has to say. In paragraph 67 of the Catechism, it talks about the role of the church in discerning and understanding and interpreting divine revelation. So revelation coming from God, with God's authority, the church has the full power to explain and interpret it. That is its specific teaching charism or prophetic charism when you're talking about the charisms of priest, prophet, and king. Priest sanctifying, prophet teaching, king is the governance, the hierarchical dimension of the church. The church has a full charism to explain public revelation. In the next paragraph, it talks about private revelation. Private revelation comes through individuals. Now, do you think that the church has a full, or your mother, or, or Jim or Betty, or whoever down the street think, does the church have full charism and authority to interpret public revelation, but boy, if you get the proper private revelation, now you're, you've got the great, you know, the greatest thing ever, and the church has no, uh, no authority or charism to interpret it. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. And this is why paragraph 67 says, the faithful who are attentive to what the magisterium listens to it and gets fruitful things out of private revelation. Which private revelations? Those that the church's charism of interpretation, which is full and complete on public, and therefore necessarily is full and complete on private, tells them there is something useful here. Guadalupe, Lourdes, La Salette, Barreau, Barang, uh, you go down 
to our own Fatima. When the church says this is credible, the faithful may have credibility, accept its credibility, and find in it what is useful, what God is trying to teach them or tell them or Our Lady or whoever. But the first stage of that is that discernment, and the only one who has the charism of discerning is the magisterium. It starts with the bishop. If he's faithful to his vocation, then he will do, he will have the proper discernment of that particular case. Is that an infallible discernment? Not at all. Is it obliging people? Yes, absolutely. If he makes a mistake and be cor be corrected uh, by by Rome, this one there in Ohio will never be corrected by Rome. I can guarantee that. So we're obliged to follow that. You know, take that example uh, of when the bishop decides. It doesn't mean that down the road, if something has legitimacy, it couldn't be reformed. But when the church says there's nothing here, you're never going to find anything, uh, frankly, that would suggest that it's anything other than from the person's imagination. So I think you start with what the church has approved. And I can't imagine that Maureen Sweeney or any latter-day mystic has any greater contribution to make to the life of the church or the life of piety than what has been said by Our Lady and by Our Lord in the various approved apparitions and mystical writings, because those things form a corpus, a sort of a, a tapestry and a, and a view of how to proceed in life. And these other things come along, they generally are breaking that up. Distrust the bishop, distrust the pope, distrust the church. Oh, every conspiracy, you gotta avoid that conspiracy over here. If things are going on in conspiratorial in the world, it's in the world that we're going to take care of them. We're going to seek the truth in the world. We're not going to turn that world upside down, making something, uh, conspiracies over COVID, the centerpiece of our spiritual life. No, Christ ought to be the centerpiece. Our Lady standing next to him, the angels and the saints surrounding us, the church carrying out his will. Those are the centerpieces of our spiritual life, not this nonsense that... Uh, pops up from time to time claiming to have our full and complete attention even when the bishop says ignore it. Uh, next up is Barbara. She is on her way to the family celebration Colin and she's giving us a call. She's listening on the EWTN app. Barbara we can't wait for you to get here. You're on with Colin Donovan. Well hello. I'm really glad to be getting a chance to talk to you and I'm, I'm glad that the previous callers have kind of uh, outlined what I was going to kind of head towards for my question, but I'm going to focus it a little bit more. Um, it is about Marian apparitions and about other kind of messages from heaven. It is clear that we don't have to, uh, you know, understand and uh, agree to all of them, even something like Lourdes. You know, it's up to us as faithful people to, you know, be able to uh, digest that and understand it or not, even if it's approved. Something like the warning, though, that has been discussed and given um, that message by many, many, many saints over the last hundreds of years, including people like Padre Pio, including current exorcists like Father Jim Blount, who have an awareness of what heaven is asking of us today. And, you know, in each individual message is not particularly, you know, discussed and approved by the local bishops necessarily, but the people who are giving these messages are certainly people that our church respects. Why? Are we not getting more awareness of this so that the people in the pew have a clue what's going to come someday? Even our priests, 
don't want to listen to this because it's not something the Pope told them to listen to. But if those priests are not aware of what's going to happen with the warning, then we're all going to be blindsided. And I don't know what to do about that other than to have my own prayer meeting so that I can help change, you know, make the people in my my circle of influence aware of the legitimate requests that heaven has made for us to be aware of these kinds of um, thankings that heaven's going to send us someday, and we don't know when, but I think it's going to be soon. Right. We're running out of time in the show, however, uh, over amount of time we have otherwise. Okay. Um, so you're saying that something that somebody tells you today has any more uh, any more threatening power than uh, the sun seeming to descend to the earth uh, in 1917 on October 13th at Fatima, uh, or that the, the the threats against Warsaw made uh, to Sister Faustina by our Lord because of abortion uh, that was primarily prostitution and the abortion of children there. Uh, and, of course, Warsaw was, uh, the Nazis took care of that pretty well. These things the Church has approved. The Scripture is full of threats and warnings. You know, our Lord himself said, if they will not listen to the prophets, who will they listen to? A prophet who is speaking today, who is not authenticated by the Church, why would you listen to him when you can find all the th all that you need in those who are authenticated by the church? I, I would send uh, people to, uh, years ago, 20 years now, Desmond Birch and I did a series on eschatology, the end times. Uh, only the last one was really on this subject because people don't understand that eschatology is, is something that embraces everything in the church from the sacraments, the history, and so on. But... Uh, he wrote a book called Trial, Tribulation, and Triumph, and in it he dealt with the approved blessed saints and venerables and a few others. And there is a sufficient body of work that says the same as those approved apparitions which we have in our time. The risk in going after somebody who is not approved is that you get whipped up into a frenzy and what is essential in the spiritual life, which is not these things, is left behind. And that's the danger of those. Well, it's been another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Once again, we want to encourage you to join us for the EWTN Family Celebration tomorrow here in beautiful downtown Birmingham. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Ace McKay, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it on Monday. Until then, God bless.